Hey, welcome. Hey, good morning. Happy New Year. Uh, and merry college football to all of you. Um, looking forward to seeing the tide roll tomorrow. tomorrow. So, uh, yeah. How about that? All right. Hey, uh, we, um, you are worshiping at King's Chapel. Uh, the theme of today's worship service has been kingship of Jesus. And the sermon today is about the kingship of Jesus. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. And um, we're going to look at a couple of verses together. Isaiah chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible, it should show up on the screen. And you can read along with us. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Um, it, is, um, it is without any shame whatsoever that I tell you that the biggest thing that I'm a nerd about is superheroes. Uh, you, want, you want to know what my mom got me for Christmas? It's this little metal tin sign artwork thing that features the cover of Detective Comics number 27 published in May of 1939. You know why that's significant? It's the first appearance of the character known as Batman. I love Batman. You know what my favorite gift is that my son received for Christmas? He received this giant Lego set of the Batmobile from the Lego Batman movie. It was 581 pieces. And I want you to know that I put most of it together myself. It was quite a joy. And so I love Batman, but really I love all things superhero. And so naturally, you know, with the way movies have been going the past 10 or 15 years, I've come to love all these superhero comic book movies. And so one of my favorites, and I think one of the highest quality ones, is uh, 2012's The Avengers. That was really well done. So I can't explain the entire plot of the movie right now, but the gist is this. The villain of the movie is Loki. Loki is the god of mischief, and, and his brother is Thor, who is the god of thunder. Thor is one of the Avengers. Spoiler alert. Loki is seeking to use a powerful object called the Tesseract to take control of the earth. And none of that is super relevant right now. Um, but however, about a quarter of a way through the movie, there's a scene that takes place out of a museum in Germany. And so a crowd of people because of the havoc that Loki is creating, a crowd of people is trying to escape and try to get away. And so they run out into like this courtyard. And so Loki, using his powers of mischief, creates four copies of himself to box the people in. And he commands them to kneel. He yells at them, kneel before me. And so, you know, Loki, he is lusting after praise and power. That's what he's after. And so as the crowd is kneeling, uh, you know, they have obeyed Loki. They are kneeling before him. Loki calms himself, and he walks among the people, and he gives them this short little speech. And this is what he says. Is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. 
The bright year of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled, and in the end, you will always kneel. After these words, an elderly German man struggles to his feet, and he says, not to men like you. Loki says, there are no men like me, and the German disagrees. There are always men like you. You know, for a silly, fun superhero movie, um, this scene really pushed a button for me. And for one, the elderly German man rebelling against Loki uh, strikes a chord considering the history of power in Germany. It conjures up the historical accounts of Nazi Germany. But there's something more complicated at play here. As I watched and listened to this evil, godlike supervillain, as he spoke on humanity's inherent need to be ruled, I found myself agreeing with him. And how can I agree with the villain? What is wrong with me? (laughs) And so what I want us to examine is the question, do we need a king? If we think back to the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they wanted a human king. You see, Samuel had appointed his sons to be judges over the people, but his sons did not walk in the way of their father. They perverted justice. So the elders of the people came to Samuel and requested that they appoint a human king to judge them. Just like all the other nations, we want a human king. Samuel gets ticked off about this, and he prays to the Lord about it. And God tells Samuel, give the people what they want. They are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me as their king. And although God, through Samuel, warns the people of what the consequences will be if they take on a human king, they refuse to relent. They want a king. So that's where we get King Saul entering the scene, and that becomes a complicated situation. As human beings, we have an inherent desire and a need to be ruled. However, when we consider the history of kingship, both among the people of Israel and in the failed empires of the world, uh, we come to the conclusion that we have rarely gotten kingship right. We have not been ruled, we have not been guided, and we have not been governed the way we need. We have also rarely understood what we need. We are a broken people. Loki's not wrong. Again, I'm agreeing with a fictional made-up supervillain here. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power and for identity. When we examine our hearts, we can't make up our mind. We know that we need to be ruled, but at the same time, we are so rebellious against authority. No matter how pure it may be, we rebel against rule and authority because we are obsessed with attaining freedom according to our standard of what freedom means. Each of us has a definition of the word freedom. We may not be able to articulate what our personal freedom looks like, but we all live in perpetual rebellion in order to abide by our own standard of freedom. And it is causing us chaos and grief, both in our personal lives and in our culture. We know that there needs to be a king and there needs to be a standard of authority, but we are all convinced that either we should be king of our own lives or we are convinced that we have the best insight into who our rulers should be. Is this perhaps why we find democracy so attractive? Democracy is a system, system of government that protects us against the tyranny of any one person. Instead, we have collective representatives. Perhaps we love democracy because it provides a greater sense of personal freedom. 
Perhaps democracy enables us to feel just a little bit stronger in the notion that we are in control of our own lives. If I get to vote and choose my authoritative figures, and if I am granted the right to speak against my leaders, then don't I in fact possess a higher sense of personal freedom? Is there not a sense in which I enjoy a little bit more autonomy? And so don't mishear me. I love democracy. I think in a fallen, sinful world, democracy is the healthiest form of government. I'm just making the point that democracy does not fully address the reality that we have a need and a desire to be ruled, and we think we know best. Yes, we truly do need a king, but there have been and always will be men who stand above us and say, I'm the one you should follow. Trust me, and I will guide you into safety and prosperity. We've seen it in the failed empires of history. We've seen it playing out in modern politics, and we see it in modern, twisted, deranged churches. The point I want to express to you today is this. If we do not recognize the supreme and authentic kingship of Jesus Christ, we will be doomed to despair and discontentment. We will be doomed to forgetfulness, to aimless wandering, and to surrender. As we move into 2018, we must become and remain a people who turn towards the throne of Jesus Christ and embrace his identity as our one true king. It is only in the attributes of Jesus as our king that we can be sustained and that we can know true freedom. So in looking at Isaiah 9 this morning, this is a prophecy about Jesus that's often visited and meditated upon during the Christmas season. Um, It would do us well to consider how the kingship of Jesus should shape our journey and our outlook as we enter into 2018 tomorrow. To begin in verse 6, Isaiah recognizes that a person will be given to God's people. This person is the son of God. This person does not come into existence by being born. He already exists and is so given by God the Father to his people. This son will bear the weight of the governance of the kingdom of God upon his shoulders. In translation, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is to come to his people and take upon himself the power, authority, and responsibility as king of the people of God. And his government, meaning his power, authority, and rule, his kingdom, will see no end. And it will be ever-increasing. We see the fruition of this prophecy beautifully portrayed in Scripture. Matthew 28, 18, after his death and resurrection, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Colossians 2, Paul mentions how all things are created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things are held together. In everything, Jesus is to be preeminent. Again, in Philippians 2, Paul says that God has exalted Jesus so that at his name, every knee will bow in honor, respect, and submission. The Bible does not allow us to come to any other conclusion aside from the reality that Jesus Christ is the only true, authentic, supreme, perpetual king over all creation and all reality. But if you're a believer sitting here this morning, I do not suspect that you have a problem confessing and believing that. It's not exactly radical to come into a PCA church and say Jesus is top of the totem pole. But the the real issue is here, we need to understand as believers our true battle, which is how do we understand how Jesus personally enters into our lives as a king, and then how do we confess with our lives that he is our king? 
So let's examine how Isaiah portrays Jesus as the coming king. In verse 6, Isaiah gives four descriptive titles for the coming Messiah. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So let's consider these together. First, King Jesus, a wonder of a counselor. Isaiah says this king will be a wonderful counselor. As with many words in our language, um, wonderful is one of those that we have watered down with our hyperbolic tendencies. When the Bible uses the word wonderful, it is meant in the sense of something that is extraordinary or marvelous. Something that is supernatural that steps outside our normal limits. We see Jesus as a wonderful person because of his inherent abilities to perform miracles and discern the hearts and minds of people. Calming a raging sea and bringing to life a dead person with mere verbal commands implies that Jesus is the embodiment of the word wonderful. Nothing in existence is outside of his supernatural influence and power. The term wonderful is a qualifier for the title of counselor. This title is reference to a person who uses wisdom and discernment to make plans. Two chapters later in Isaiah 11 verse 2, it says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This prophesied Messiah King, Jesus, will possess God-given wisdom. The Spirit of God himself shall abide upon this king. And this is critical because kings must be effective counselors. They must be wise and fruitful decision makers. We admire when our leaders surround themselves with wise counselors because that increases the likelihood of developing a resource of knowledge and discernment for our own well-being. However, this king that Isaiah is referring to will be a wonder of a counselor. This king will be a wonderful counselor who does not need the aid of human counselors because the very spirit of God rests upon him to provide supreme authoritative wisdom. If you go and read the book of Judges, it's pretty bleak. Um, It does not portray the people of Israel in a good light. So the very last statement in the book, um, Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So contrast that verse with the hope given to us by the way Isaiah describes the type of king the coming Messiah would be. Before Israel had a king, everyone did what seemed right and wise according to their own standard. As we examine our lives, we see that we frequently slip back into thinking and operating according to our own standard of wisdom. I would imagine each of us have an example of a time when we chose to operate according to our own wisdom and it backfired on us. Even though we received counsel from God through his word and through his people, um, we went against it. And I imagine many of us had consequences for that decision. Recall the account of Jesus meeting with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. This is one of Jesus' most cunning interactions. Because Jesus possesses the supernatural wisdom of God, he is able to give an account for this woman's life using perfect discernment. He acknowledges how living according to her own wisdom has failed her. She has had five husbands, and she lives with another man who is not her husband. 
And here's where the rubber meets the road for how we experience Jesus as a wonderful counselor. When Jesus has perfect perception of this woman's failures, it is not done in a manner of condemnation. What we see is that Jesus chooses to share the gospel with her. The good news that the Messiah she is waiting for is sitting here speaking with her. And although this all-perceiving counselor has acknowledged her failures, it is with great anticipation and zeal that she runs into town to call the people to come and investigate this man. Can this be the Christ, she says. This interaction that showcases Jesus as a wonder of a counselor reveals what we ultimately need from King Jesus. We need a king who will not only hold us accountable to turning away from the folly of self-based wisdom, but one who will also offer and promise himself to us as our perfect wisdom. Does your 2018 look foggy? Are you in great confusion and great doubt? The same Jesus who is able to supernaturally perceive the hearts of men is available to you as a perfect counselor. Following Jesus as king includes submitting to his wisdom instead of our own. We can ultimately trust Jesus because his shed blood proves the sincerity of his concern for our lives. And we see, how do we know that we can have access to the wisdom of Christ? Go read John 14, where Jesus keeps repeating, I'm sending the Spirit to you. We have access to the wisdom of Christ, to him as a perfect counselor, because of the Holy Spirit. All right, the next two titles that Isaiah gives, I want to discuss together. King Jesus, God in the flesh. Isaiah says that this coming Messiah will be mighty God and everlasting Father. And here's why I'm grouping these two together. These two names for Jesus acknowledge that Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, will be God in the flesh. From these two names, what do we learn about the person of Jesus? And what do we learn about his office as our king? To label Jesus as mighty and everlasting is to say that he is all-powerful, that he is perpetually enduring, that he is constant. To say that he is God and Father is to say that Jesus is the great I am. This is echoing the term Emmanuel that we've discussed during the Christmas season, God with us. Now, we may be tempted to get caught up and claim that there's a confusion of persons going on here. I thought Jesus is God the Son, but this is labeling him as the Father. No, Isaiah is proclaiming that the king to come and rule over us is God himself. Jesus did not shy away from the audacity of this statement. In John 14, Philip says to Jesus, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus replies, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 10.30, Jesus proclaims the magnitude of his deity. I and the Father are one. And then maybe the most wondrously scandalous thing Jesus ever said about himself, John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Bible and the claims of Jesus himself do not allow us to come to any other conclusion than the reality that Jesus Christ is God. Now, perhaps I'm, again, coming across like a Sunday school Captain Obvious, if that's how you're receiving me. I apologize for the theological reminder. But I want us to consider the significance of knowing that King Jesus is God in the flesh. You and I are created in the image of God. 
I was created to reflect God. I was created to be like him as much as I can as his created being. The very purpose for which I was created was to display the glory of God, the creativity of God, the purity of God, the beauty of God, the generosity of God, the kindness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the happiness of God. However, sin created separation from us and from God. The story of the Bible is God bridging that unbridgeable divide in order to bring us to himself and restore our rightful purpose as reflectors of his glory. But even for those of us who are believers, we're going to spend the rest of this side of eternity battling sin. And since sin is the opposite of the glory of God, my sin disconnects me from my experience and my enjoyment of God. It does not disconnect me from God. That cannot happen. But my experience and enjoyment of God is uh, tainted a little bit through my sin. And therefore, I get disconnected through that from my identity and my purpose. Have you ever been aware of an identity crisis going on yourself or an identity crisis going on in someone else? Have you ever been lost and hopelessly wandering, feeling like you have no purpose in life? When we stray from basking in the identity of God, we will stray from embracing our own identity. When we wander from seeking what God desires to do in our world, we wander away from our own true purpose. Uh, There was a film that came out in 2006 called uh, Blood Diamond, as Academy Award-winning actor Leonardo DiCaprio. And uh, it's a story that takes place during the Sierra Leone Civil War, uh, which occurred between 1991 and 2002. So militant revolutionaries took many children captive, brainwashed them, and forced them to be soldiers in their movement. So in this film, one of the main characters, Solomon, has had his son, Dia, taken from him by these revolutionaries. So towards the end of the movie, Solomon and his partner, Danny, Leo's character, are confronted by his young son. Dia has a gun aimed steadily right at Danny, and Solomon attempts to snap his son out of his bloodthirsty trance. Here's what Solomon says to his son. Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me. Look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vende of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Nyanda and the new baby. The cows wait for you and Babu, the wild dog who minds no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you and you will come home with me and be my son again. Jesus is our king. And to experience the kingship of Jesus is to experience the fatherhood of God. We all wonder. We all wonder away. We need a king who does not just command us to come home, but one who declares fatherly love over us, who reminds us of where our home truly is. We are no longer bad and wicked. Those of us who trust in Christ have entered into his righteousness. And when we stray, God the Father beckons us home, back to the place of abiding in him, and back to the place of tending about in his business. We need a king who, when we stray from the place of his rule and love, he seeks us out and implores us to come back and be at home and be his son again. 
These are the loving demands of an all-powerful father king. These, this is the reality that kills feelings of loneliness and abandonment. This is the reality that provides the ultimate mending that your heart needs in the midst of broken relationships. Relationships, friendships, loving people is inconvenient. It's messy, it's hard, and it often leads to much pain. If we do not bask in the reality that God is our Father, those things will make us miserable. Lastly, um, the last title that I want to cover from Isaiah that he gives us is King Jesus, the Prince of Authentic Peace. My friends and I in the Vision Pathways community, um, we read a book this past semester called The Drama of Scripture, Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story. It's a story that does an excellent job of revealing the Bible as one big coherent story. There's a chapter in the book that comes right before the chapter that covers the coming of Jesus. This chapter reviews all the various faith and political and philosophical views of the people of Israel in the time around of Jesus' birth. Um, And what becomes very clear as you summarize all these different views is that the great majority of the people who believe and expect a coming Messiah believe that he will be a great military conqueror. This Messiah will be a powerful king who establishes the rule of God in Israel by force. And the region of the world at this time is no stranger to revolutionaries and rebellions. There are multiple false messiahs that rise up and they are all decimated. Then in comes Jesus of Nazareth. And from very, very early on, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he does not allow any misinterpretation. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one come to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. And so as this number of people began following Jesus, marveling at his signs and wonders, imagine their disappointment when Jesus reiterates over and over that his kingdom will not be a kingdom that takes over by force. Power and might and superiority are not the values in the kingdom of Christ. Tim Keller says that Jesus came to usher in an upside-down kingdom, meaning the very things that the world viewed as weak, the kingdom of Jesus established them as the highest values. Of course, this would cause great confusion for the people, The way Jesus is going about this is completely counterintuitive. But we must remember the name that Isaiah gives the coming Messiah. This coming king, this Messiah, this great ruler given by God, he will be a prince of peace. In the grand scheme of the modern world, we often view the path to peace as one of enforcement. We must create peace. We must take others. We must make others bend to our will through force or through threat or through manipulation or through circumstances so that we can ensure the stability we enjoy with peace. But run that line of thinking into your personal lives. How have you fought for peace in your life? How have you enforced peace for yourself and for your family? What would that look like? Maybe you're a workaholic. If you can just put enough hours in, If you can just get that raise, if you can just get the recognition from your superiors, then you will know peace. You will have created peace in your life. I'm glad that in the past few years our culture is beginning to recognize uh, that pornography is an epidemic. And I think we have a tendency to quickly turn up our nose at those who 
struggle with pornography. But the desire sought after in pornography is the same desire sought by the one who eats too much, drinks too much, lies too much, sleeps too much, watches too much TV. We are all trying to manufacture peace in our lives. Reflect back on this past year. How many of us can genuinely say that any of these sinful, self-generated methodologies actually provided us any notion of real peace? None of these things actually provide peace. They provide escape. We don't want to engage and confront the difficulties of our lives, and so we look for an escape, thinking we will know peace. Fantasy and indulgent behavior and escape will not provide us peace. There is only one way to know peace. There is only one thing that can give you peace and sustain that peace. If we do not sincerely ponder the words of Jesus, it would be an easy mistake to accuse him of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. On one hand, we read him saying things like, Come unto me, all that labor, and I will give you rest. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. But then we hear Jesus say things like, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And in this life, you shall have trouble and persecution. So it seems like on the surface, Jesus is contradicting himself. But the reality is that we are tempted to draw the same erroneous conclusion about Jesus that the people in his regions did at that time. We expect immediate peace in this life. We expect Jesus to be a Messiah who provides complete resolution and tranquility and rest from weary troubles in this life. But Jesus, the prince of true, authentic peace, knows what we truly need. More than anything else, Jesus knows that we need peace with God. Jesus knows that we need rest in our souls more than anything else. We don't need pillows and blankets. We need God's spirit and God-powered perseverance. We need supernatural help in our souls. We don't need God to mend all our messy, complicated relationships with our family members. We need a perfect father who will adopt us out of the spiritual orphanage located at the gates of hell. We don't need political power. We don't need our political favorites to be elected. We need a king who is able to definitively declare that he has absolute authority and control over all creation and reality. Things were so impossibly, hopelessly bad for us that the only way that we could ever know peace in our hearts and souls was if the Son of God entered into our world as a killable human and shed his blood to pay the debt of our sin. And if that person would go to those links to bring you into his family, and if that person has absolute control over all creation, don't you think you can trust him? Don't you think you can trust him to be a perfect prince of peace as you abide and as you journey through his kingdom? Resolve now to seek out peace from Jesus instead of seeking escape. Let 2018 be different. Turn to Jesus for peace. You know how when you look up a definition or you look up a word in the dictionary and there's like multiple definitions for that one word. Um, I I, I googled the word peace. I typed in peace definition in Google. And you you know what word kept repeating itself the most in the various definitions? Freedom. The word freedom. 
I found this interesting because freedom implies the release from a bondage of some kind. So what's been holding you in bondage? The Prince of Peace has already released you from the greatest bondage. He brought you out of spiritual death. In what other areas might he provide freedom for you? So in closing, um, we're people seeking both kingship and freedom. We want the joy and the liberation of freedom with the structure, peace, and security of kingship. And this combination is most perfectly realized in submitting to the kingship of Jesus Christ. The other day, prepping for the sermon, I was reading back through uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, Jesus the King, very simple title. Um, it's, a, it's how he examines the person of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And so early in the book, uh, Keller recalls a story that was written by George MacDonald 150 years ago that you've probably heard of, The Princess and the Goblin. So the story is about an eight-year-old girl named Irene and her fairy grandmother. The grandmother gives the girl a ball of very fine thread tied to her ring. The thread cannot be seen, only felt. And if Irene, if Irene is ever lost or frightened and wants to get to her grandmother, all she has to do is follow the thread. So one day, goblins enter into Irene's house, and she decides to follow the thread. But to her dismay, the thread leads her outside to where other goblins are, and even worse, it leads her right into the cave where the goblins live. Irene considers following the thread back out of the cave, but she finds out that the thread cannot be felt going backwards. It only works going forward. And the thread takes her to the back of the cave where there lay a heaping pile of stones blocking the entire cave. She realizes she must follow this thread, and she begins grabbing and moving a few stones until a small hole is created. She soon hears and discovers that one of her friends was trapped on the other side of the wall. So she continues tearing down this pile of stones and clawing at them until her fingers are raw and bleeding. Her friend is amazed that Irene found her. So Irene realizes the purpose of her grandmother's thread. Wherever it leads, Irene must follow. And if she is to get back to her grandmother, she has to trust the thread. The thread is trustworthy because her grandmother is trustworthy. Likewise, the path of following Jesus is trustworthy because Christ is trustworthy. Following Jesus, submitting to his kingship, can be a frightening, dangerous path. When we come to trust in Christ and submit to him as king, in a way, he hands us a thread, much like Irene's. Perhaps there are goblins and piles of stone and painful, bloody fingers on the way. But the question is, can I trust Jesus to be my king? To summarize Tim Keller's thoughts, we know that we can trust Jesus because Jesus had his own thread to follow. And his thread led him to the unimaginable horror and agony of the cross. And he did that so that your thread would lead you into the embrace of God. In order to experience authentic freedom, our lives must revolve around the kingship of Jesus Christ. We were created to be ruled by a good and perfect king. We were created to be in his family and to be his honored servants. When we wander outside of this purpose, our lives will lose their structure and their significance. Psalm 119 is massive, and there is much adoration given to God for the gift of his word. 
And in verse 32 of Psalm 119, it says, I will run in the path of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. We often see in Scripture this metaphorical language of walking according to God's law or walking in the Spirit. But here the word run is used. And running communicates haste and urgency and vibrant, thriving. So here the psalmist is saying that he will run within the rule and authority of God when God enlarges his heart. Enlarges his heart means that God would take away all the noise, all the clutter, all the distraction, all the fears, and all the lies. That God would remove all those. And when God does this work in his heart, then that will cause him to run to thrive, to live a vibrant life with urgent significance. How many of us are about to enter into 2018 bogged down by the weights of insecurity, fear, and distraction that's been festering in our heart? How many of us long for a vibrant relationship with God but can't seem to get over the hump? Maybe what we need more than anything else going into this new year is not new resolutions, It's not new commitments and no new goals posted on Facebook for everybody to see. Perhaps what we need is to plead with our king to come and enter our heart and ask him to remove the garbage. Remove the clutter. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Renew is a beautiful word. Renew, rebirth, regeneration. The heart of Christianity is the longing of God to put death to death, and to create vibrant life. Ask Jesus to renew your heart. Have you been following Jesus since you were a wee lad? Have you known God for 50 years? Still, ask him to renew your heart. Some of us have great obstacles preventing us from experiencing the renewing power of King Jesus. Some of us have had great damage and have experienced pain and wounds even from this past year. Some of us would love nothing more than to put the pain of 2017 behind us, to hand that over to Jesus, to have our wounds patched up and healed. So what is it going to take for you to come open-handed with all your wounds from 2017 and place them before the throne of Christ? If we are going to be a people who boldly and vibrantly follow our King into the year to come, We must have resolution for the year that has passed. Remember what Tolkien wrote in The Return of the King. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. May you know healing in 2018. And more than that, may you know the abundant life promised by a king who condescended himself to the point of death on your behalf. Pray with me. Uh, God, We are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for the opportunity to come and and to ponder upon your word, to meditate upon it, to, to talk about Jesus, to talk about the kingship of Jesus. And uh, Father, we have a need and a desire for a king. God, we cannot experience freedom outside of the kingship of Jesus Christ. I recently thought about the, the silly illustration for when I was a college student, uh, Father, of just of being a fish and demanding freedom from outside of its fishbowl. And 
Father, if, if that were to be true for the fish, it would die. And likewise, Father, our attempts to experience freedom outside of the kingship of Jesus Christ does not exist. And in fact, it leads to death. And so we pray that you would work in our hearts and you would turn us back to the throne of Christ. And it is there that we would find our joy and our hope and our peace. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.